If you have your Bibles, let's look this morning at Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible with you, it should be printed on the screen behind me. I'm sorry, it will not be printed on the screen behind me. I forgot to give Cindy that reference. So we're going to look at Acts 16. So if you don't have a Bible, scoot next close to somebody that does. Or you can fire up your phone, whatever. Acts 16. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15. It's good to be back with you. Um, Thank you for giving me some time off. It was good to have some time away and some downtime. It was good to spend more time with my family. So, but it's also good to be back. So, hope you all had a wonderful Christmas. Hope you've had a wonderful new year so far. And I'm glad to be back with you. Looking forward to this year and seeing what God is going to do in our hearts and our lives and our family together. So, thank you again for giving me some time off. It was uh, um, enjoyable. Thank you. Acts 16, we're going to kind of jump right in, so if this doesn't make sense, it's okay. We're going to ask God to help us. We're going to ask him to help us understand this text, because we need to. Acts 16, beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized and her household as well, She urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Let's pray. Our Father, it is good to be here in your house with your people. It's good to begin the year worshiping and thanking and praising you for who you are. God, I ask that as we sit here under your word, that you would give us a desire, um, that you would, you would keep us from having the desire to sit under your word so that we can just acquire more knowledge, keep us from sitting under your word so that we think we just need more techniques of how to live this week. Give us the desire, Lord, as we sit under your word, give us the desire that we would be transformed by your word. Change us. Make us more like your son, Jesus. We pray in his name and for your glory, Jesus. Amen. We're starting a new series. This year, we're going to start in the book of Philippians. We're going to do a new series through the book of Philippians. We're going to spend about 12 weeks looking at that letter together. And you might be thinking, well, why in the world are we not reading Philippians 1.1? Well, it's because if we want to understand Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, we need to go back. If we want to understand the, the, the letter that Paul writes to Philippians, we need to go back to the beginning of the Philippian church. That's why we're looking at Acts chapter 16. The bulk of this chapter is showing us the beginnings of the church at Philippi. But there's something else. It's not just that we need to go back and see the beginning of the church of Philippi. Of, Excuse me. See the beginning of the church at Philippi before we look at Philippians 1.1. It's that we also need to think about this. How in the world 
did the message of Jesus Christ get to Philippi? Some months ago, we looked at the Gospel of Mark, and you know that Jesus was crucified and died and buried, and you know that he rose from the dead. You remember that? That was in Jerusalem. So how in the world do we get 350 miles away from Jerusalem to this community called Philippi? How do we get there? So we're actually going to go all the way back, because I want you to connect the whole story. So please join us on this journey. Please join us. Remember that as we gather as God's people, we are part of the greatest story that's ever been told. We are part of the greatest story ever. You, me, us. And unless we remember that story, Philippians is going to seem awfully cold, awfully dead, and just some kind of teaching to an abstract people. But we need to understand that it is our story. It's our story. And unless we understand our history, we're going to miss part of our story. So we're going to go all the way back to what comes before Acts 16, actually the first 15 chapters, and I'm going to summarize them for you. We can't cover every story, we can't go through everything, but I have two references to cover the first 15 chapters. Are you ready? You ready to join me in the story? Hang in there. Stay with me. How in the world did the gospel get to Philippi from Jerusalem? How did that happen? You see, we know that Jesus died. We realize that Jesus was raised from the dead. We realize that following Jesus' resurrection, he was traveling around about 40 days, meeting with people, instructing people, revealing himself to them, pointing them to the scriptures, saying, look, I'm everywhere in the Bible. I'm everywhere. We know all that. But let's look at Acts 1.8. Because after Jesus is resurrected, he is about to leave. You see, after Jesus came back to life, it wasn't too long before he went back to heaven to sit down at the Father's right hand. It wasn't long before Jesus was going to go back to be with his Father and rule from heaven. But what happens before Jesus goes back to heaven? Look at chapter 1 in verse 8. If you have a Bible, go back and look. Jesus is meeting with his disciples, and this is what he tells them. He says, this is what's going to happen. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now that might just fall flat on you, but I want you to understand, that is the plan. Jesus says in Acts 1-8, this is what is going to happen until I come again. This is what's going to go down. The significance of what I have done through my death and resurrection, the significance of that, the power of my death, the power of my resurrection is going to go out. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to spread to Judea and Samaria, and it's going to go to the ends of the earth. I am going to build my kingdom. I am going to spread my glory. I am going to spread my kingdom with truth and love, and y'all are my witnesses. Then he tells the disciples, this is what I want you to do. Go to Jerusalem and wait. And while you're waiting, commit yourself to prayer. You see, this summons us to think about what is our vision as a church? What are we about as a church? 
I hope to explore that with you. I hope we can explore that together this year, this whole year, to be talking about vision. But you see, our vision, our long-range plan, has to line up and connect with what the Lord Jesus is doing. Our plans are nothing if they don't line up with the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is not only saying, look, here's the plan. He's in effect saying to us on January 4, 2015, this is the plan. Now pray and wait. So the disciples went to Jerusalem and they wait. They waited and they prayed. And they were there. They were there. They began to experience what happened. As a matter of fact, if you have a Bible, maybe we won't do all this now, but perhaps this afternoon you can do this. Notice that in chapter 2, the gospel begins to explode in Jerusalem. That happens from chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7. If you have a Bible, look at chapter 8 and verse 1. You'll notice what you find there. A persecution broke out, and then the gospel began to spread. Notice where it says, Judea and Samaria. Hmm, I've heard this somewhere before. Yes, you have. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Then if you look in chapter 13, the church lays hands on Paul and Barnabas and commissions them to go and to take the gospel and to plant churches everywhere. So from chapter 13 to today, that's what's been happening. Yes, it's true. Jesus says in chapter 1, verse 8, this is what's going to happen. In chapter 8, you see that it goes out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Then in chapter 13, you see that it starts to go to the Gentile world, and that's what's been happening ever since. You see, this plan of Jesus is not obsolete. It's continuing. It's continuing. And the disciples were right there, and they heard this message from Jesus himself. And perhaps not unexpectedly, they don't get it. So, Jesus, this is the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to us now? No. I'm going global, Jesus says. Your plans, your thoughts are far too small. They're far too insignificant. I am going to take my truth everywhere in the world. I'm going to spread my glory everywhere. So go to Jerusalem and wait. And while you're waiting, pray. Acts chapter 1-8 tells you Jesus' plan until he comes back. It's that simple. Here's the second verse. Look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Jesus said, I'm going to spread my plan all over the world. But what did that plan actually look like practically in the lives of his people? Yes, this is true. You today can see her this morning and think through, okay, this is what Jesus has been doing. That's why the church is everywhere. That's why the story of the gospel is everywhere in the world. There's still places to go, but that's why it's happened, because Jesus said it. But what does that mean for me? What does that mean for me personally? What were Jesus' disciples doing in the midst as this plan was being carried out? Acts 2.42 tells you. This is what they were doing. Yes, they had gone to Jerusalem and prayed. Yes, the gospel began to explode in Jerusalem. And here's what we find God's followers, the followers of Jesus doing. They were committing themselves, look at Acts 2.42, to the apostles' teaching or the apostles' doctrine. They committed themselves to the breaking of bread. They committed themselves to prayer. And they committed themselves to fellowship and community. 
It meant that they understood that they needed to be part of a body and that they were the body. It meant that they needed to understand that the breaking of bread is very, very important. It meant that they needed to understand that fellowship and living in one another's lives was really, really important. It meant that sitting under the teaching of God's word was really important. Yes, Jesus has a plan, and that plan looks an awful lot like learning from God, breaking bread together, fellowshipping together, and praying together. That's what it means in the life of his people. That's what Acts 1-8 looks like practically, that God's people were to be doing those things, and they were. Now, yes, it's true that there were tongues going on in the book of Acts. Yes, it's true that there were miracles going on. But I'm telling you, those things were all subservient to the message of the gospel. Tongues was always subservient to the clear proclamation of the gospel. And besides that, they were just temporary. The main thing is that the significance of Christ's death and resurrection was going out everywhere. You've heard this before, but I'll say it again. You see, God doesn't have a mission for his people. He has a people for his mission. God has a plan that he's carrying out. You see, for the first century apostles and for the first century followers of Jesus, they thought of the resurrection a little bit differently than we do because we miss it. The resurrection for them was not only hope in, through, and after death. The resurrection of Jesus, the fact that Jesus was alive, was not just hope in death. It wasn't just hope through death. It wasn't just hope after death. The resurrection for the first century followers of Christ affected now. It changed everything for them now. Of course it has future implications. But the fact that Jesus was alive, it changed everything. It changed everything. They understood that the resurrection of Christ mattered now. That's why they couldn't stop talking about it in the book of Acts. You can read. They could not stop talking about the truth that Jesus, their Jesus, the Savior, the Lord of the universe, was alive. He was alive. You see, we are God's plan. The church is God's plan. You are God's plan. He's going to spread his glory throughout the earth. And as he's doing that, he's summoning us. You see? He's calling us from death to life. He is taking the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection and making us alive. He's spreading his glory through us. The church is God's plan. We are the plan. You are God's plan. It's how his glory is displayed. It's how he spread it, spreads it everywhere. That's why Jesus says, you're my witnesses. That means when you read through the New Testament, and if we will think more biblically about our lives, what it means is that we'll realize that what God wants from us is he wants us to be ordinary people doing ordinary things 
with gospel intentionality. What that means is that God has a plan. And what it means is that we ought to desire to learn more about that plan, sit under his teaching. It means that we ought to want to fellowship together and grow in understanding one another and being involved in each other's lives. It means that we ought to value the breaking of bread. And it means that we ought to pray. It means that we ought to fulfill the callings in our lives as we're doing all of those things. That is what is happening in the world. That's God's mission. To save a people and to use them as they are living their lives, as they are following him, no matter where he sends us, no matter where he sends you. You know, this is somewhat hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to get a handle on this because we live in such an age of sound bites, you know? We, we want something to be compressed into six seconds and then go on a loop so we can just watch it over and over and over and laugh and have fun. We want, we want, to, we want to condense everything about being successful into just easy steps. We live in a time in which there are easy steps to attain whatever goal that you think you might want. We live in a day and time in which every goal is measurable. We live in a time in which there is just an obsession with a plan. Just tell me how to do it. I'll just work it. I'll just work the plan. I will work it. But you see, what Jesus is saying here is different. The early followers of Christ, they were more concerned in the planner. They were more concerned with the planner than with the plan. Was there a plan? Absolutely there was a plan. Should we have a plan? We should have a plan. But we need to be more concerned about the planner. We need to be more concerned about making our plans and then making sure that we hold them fairly loosely so that God can direct and change. Any of y'all ever make any plans and then they not go well? That's good. Me too. You know what God is doing when we make plans and we make the plan the ultimate end or the ultimate goal just to have a plan? You know how many times we make that plan and then the plan doesn't go well because God is actually more interested in us knowing Him than in us having a plan? He's far more interested in us making plans but making sure those plans are very flexible. He's far more interested in us knowing him and in making the best plans we can, knowing he's going to do what we want. And even when our plans fail, it means that God is teaching us something about who we are. It means that God is getting into us. Maybe he's helping us loosen our grip on the control that we all want. Jesus says, here's the plan. And the followers of Christ were more preoccupied with the planner than with the plan. It's fascinating that in the book of Acts, they don't go to every city and say, and say, hey, what? Guess what? Let me tell you the plan. Here's the plan. Jesus is going to spread his glory from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the other part, othermost parts of the world. That's what he's going to do. That's the plan. Now let's get on board with that. That's what they said at all. Everywhere they were going, they were talking about Jesus. They were talking about the fact that he's alive. They didn't even understand the simplicity of Acts 1-8. 
But they were not traveling around telling everybody that's what Jesus was going to do. They were telling people about the Christ. They were living their lives in light of the fact that he was alive. They were living their lives in light of the fact that he was in control. Yes, Paul made plans. And sometimes God would say, you're not going there. You're actually going over there. And sometimes Paul would go over there. And Paul would face beatings and imprisonment and persecution. But that's exactly what God had intended for him. That was not a thwarting of God's plan. That was a spreading of his glory in ways that we could never, ever imagine if they didn't happen. So take heart. The plans that you might have made have become derailed, perhaps. But God is still working. And he is spreading the glory, his glory, his love, in ways that you could never imagine. I have a friend of mine who is dying of cancer. It's amazing to read her writings. Because the Lord is communicating love to her and through her in ways that could have never happened if she wasn't enduring this trial. The same is happening for us, and the same will happen in our lives, and it will happen together. You see, that's how the gospel got to Philippi. That's how the news of Jesus Christ made it to Acts chapter 16. That's how we, that's why we read Acts 16. That's how we got there. So let's dive right into Philippi. Here we have Paul landing in this area that is probably modern-day Greece. And here he is arriving in Philippi, which is perhaps the second largest city in this area, in this region. Equivalent for us in North Carolina would be Raleigh, the second biggest town in our state. Paul lands in this area, and here he is walking around. Here he is living his ordinary life, which is quite extraordinary, although it's very ordinary. Here he is coming to this place of Philippi, as verse 12 tells you, it's a Roman colony. That means it was governed by Roman law. It means that it had Roman principles. This was a real pioneering effort. You know how we know that? Because there was no synagogue. You see, the Apostle Paul would oftentimes travel to new towns and then he would go into the synagogue and he would begin to talk about the scriptures because people gathered together in the synagogue to hear the scriptures, to pray, to maybe sing a little bit, but understand about what the scriptures were saying. Sound familiar? Kind of what we do on Sunday? Well, there was no synagogue there. Scholars tell us that in order for a synagogue to be established, there had to be at least 10 male Jews. That meant that there weren't even 10 Jewish men there. There was no place of worship established. So Paul couldn't go there. So he decided to go down to the river. Don't you love it that he just says, we decided to do this. We assumed that this would happen. We assumed that we'd meet somebody at the river, so we just went down there. So Paul goes down to the river, and what does he find? He finds a bunch of women gathered together. They're praying. They're there talking. And one of those particular ladies is highlighted for us here in Acts chapter 16. Her name is Lydia. And as Paul's talking with these ladies, Lydia, for whatever reason, begins to gain prominence. 
Now, here's what we know about Lydia. The text tells us a few things. She's from Thyatira. What that means is that Lydia is Asian. But Lydia is not just Asian. She's actually incredibly wealthy. It says here that she is a seller of purple. Very extravagant. This would be a modern equivalent of a CEO of a design company. For those of you that follow fashion, she is an ancient DVF. You know Diane von Fuschenberger? You know her? Might have said her name wrong. This is an ancient DVF. Here she is. She owns her own business. She owns her own company. She is incredibly successful. She gets to travel everywhere. She probably has houses in multiple locations. What this means about her, what this means about Lydia, is that she is intelligent. It means that she is savvy. It means that she is a thinker. It means that she keeps up with the trends. It means that perhaps she even challenges the trends and sets her own trends. Here she is, gathering at the river. Now what's interesting is that the text also says that she is a worshiper of God. Did you catch that in Acts chapter 16? Here she is, a worshiper of God. Now this is a particular term that's used to describe a very particular person. You see, someone that was a worshiper of God is this. They're not really an atheist. They would admit that God is real. They're not an atheist, nor are they someone who's been burned by the church. They haven't been involved in one. Lydia would be the kind of woman that we might say in our day and time is someone that is unaffiliated. They're not burned by the church. They're not really an atheist. They're spiritual. They're just kind of spiritual. You know, they're interested in spiritual things. They're interested in thinking about spiritual things and talking about spiritual things. But they're just really unaffiliated. See, this type of person is also someone who is interested in listening to the claims of Scripture. They started wrestling with the Bible. They started wrestling with the idea of God as he's described in the Word. But yet they remain unconvinced. They're open-minded to that extent. They're willing to consider things. They're willing to have real dialogue. They're willing to talk about philosophical and theological things. But they remain unconvinced. It also describes someone who is a very moral person. A worshiper of God means that even though they're unconvinced of the truth of God and who he is, as the Bible says, they're moral. Lydia was a, a moral person. She was someone who lived a principled life. She knew right and she knew wrong. And she understood that it was important to live a moral life. She understood that it would be important to live a principled life. As a matter of fact, my guess is if she heard of anything bad that happened, her instant response was probably, oh, I would never do that. Like she knew things were wrong, and she certainly wasn't afraid of saying, I would never do that. That's wrong. It shouldn't happen. In her heart, I would never do that. So here she is gathering at the river, talking. And Lydia is obviously unfulfilled, isn't she? You see, you have this woman who has had all the success 
which, oh, by the way, would be a lot harder in the first century than it would now. She has had all kinds of success, and here she is, still gathering here, thinking and talking about God. You see, she knows she's not complete. She knows that her life is missing something. She's not fulfilled. She knows that God is important. She knows that morals are important. But at the end of the day, they are not enough to bring her peace and wholeness and fulfillment. And here they are, talking at the river. Does that sound like someone you know? Maybe it sounds a lot like you. Maybe that's really what's going on in your life. Understand that God is real, understand the importance of morals, but yet unconvinced. Willing to talk, willing to listen. Maybe just that. Well, here they are at the river. What do you think they would have been talking about? Isn't that fun to think about? What would Paul have been saying? What would he have been teaching? What would have been going on? The text doesn't tell us, but it's not hard to imagine that Paul would have probably, with given this audience and given Lydia in particular and how she's highlighted here for us, it's not a far stretch to think about Paul was talking to Lydia and talking to all the women about his own life. You see, Paul too could affirm, you know what? I, too, was a moral person. As a matter of fact, I thought morals were really important. I was as moral as you could get. I followed the letter of the law, at least what I thought was the law, what I thought the law wanted. But over time, I began to realize that I, too, was missing something. And actually, over time, I realized that it's not just that I was missing something as if my career exploded even further that I would have been more fulfilled. I realized that even if I made more money, that I wouldn't really be more, that I wouldn't really find fulfillment there either. What I realized is that I wasn't really missing something, I was missing someone. I was missing Jesus. And yes, Lydia, and yes to the other ladies that are there, yes, it's true. Jesus is everywhere in the Old Testament, and I'll show you. Yes, it's true, all of the scriptures, all of them, point to the Lord Jesus. They're all describing him. They're all showing him in types and in pictures and shadows. It's all true. Jesus is the one. I was missing Jesus. I was missing a relationship with him. My morals and living a principled life did not get me fulfillment. They did not bring me peace. My career did not bring me fulfillment. It did not give me peace. Only Jesus did that. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul could describe the relationship with Christ in this way. And beloved, this is the gospel for us. The Apostle Paul could say, when Jesus died on the cross, I was crucified with him. That's how close the connection is between Jesus and his people. That we can say that when Christ died, I died. I was crucified with him. That means that all of my sin was there. It means that my identity was there. It means that he and I died. And what that means is that the life that I'm living today, Lydia, 
the life that I'm living to now, now congregation in front of you, the life that I'm now living, I'm living by faith in the Son of God. I have entrusted my life to Him. When He died, I considered myself to have died. When He rose, I consider my life to be resurrected. And the life that I live today, it's by faith. It's by entrusting all that I am to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because let me tell you something. He died for me. He died for me. The life that I now live by faith in the Son of God, I live because He died for me. And He rose again for me. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul could tell Lydia. That's what the Bible tells us about the gospel. To boil it down even more, the Apostle Paul could tell her, look, Lydia, in every other religion of the world, I get to define who I am. In every other religion, in every other way of life, I get to decide on everything. I get to define my own terms. I get to create my own God. I get to do whatever I want. Say, this is right, this isn't right. This is wrong, this is wrong. I get to, dis- I get to define everything. I get to define me. But Christianity, God defines me. The real message, Lydia, is that you need to understand that God defines everything about you. He says who you are, both in the fact that you're bad and a sinner, and the fact that you're forgiven and redeemed because of what Christ has done. You see, Lydia, all this comes about by grace. It's all of grace, Lydia. You're never going to work hard enough to find fulfillment and peace. Your business is never going to explode to such an extent that you're going to find satisfaction. It's not. What you need is the Lord Jesus, and you need his grace. That's why it's so fascinating here that the text goes on to say that the Lord opened her heart to receive and to pay attention, it says, to the things that were said by Paul. You see, the Lord was at work changing Lydia's heart. God opened her heart. You see, God has a mission. He's at work spreading his glory throughout the world. Paul was fulfilling his calling. Lydia's heart wasn't changed because she made a decision. Lydia's heart wasn't changed because she believed. Lydia's heart wasn't changed because the Apostle Paul was an amazing teacher. Lydia's heart was changed because God opened her heart. Lydia's heart was changed. Your heart was changed. My heart is changed because God opens our hearts so that we can receive what he has done so we can affirm that he is right you see you'll begin to know and you'll continue to know that the gospel is at work in your life and the gospel is at work in my life whenever we're realizing more and more that God is at work and that's not something that I have done is that God is continuing to act on me And I'm even willing to admit that I'm not the best person, that I'm actually before God, I'm bad, I'm a sinner, 
You see, the gospel convinces us that we're bad. It actually convinces good people that they're bad. Lydia was a good person. We would consider her a good person. But she hadn't come to grips with the fact of who she was before God. Well, that's what happened here. Lydia's heart was changed just like we beg God to continue to renovate our lives and help us see our badness so that we might understand his goodness, so that we wouldn't lean and cling to our plans all the time, but to watch him and what he is doing. Beloved, this truth is what brings us to the table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples. And as they were gathered around the table together, he had bread. And after he blessed it, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat and be thankful. In the same way, he also took the cup and he said, this represents my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it. Take it in. Because forgiveness is real. Hope is real because of what I have done. Now remember, the Bible also tells us that we need to examine ourselves as we come to the table. And so this is a time for us to think about our lives and to think about our lives as they relate to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you know, if you know that Jesus defines who you are, if you're convinced, and you might have some doubts about this here and there, our li- uh, the life of faith oftentimes is up and down, isn't it? But if you know in your heart of hearts that the Lord Jesus is your Savior and that you have been crucified with him and that now you're living your life by faith in him, then this table is for you. And if you haven't come to that point yet in your life in which you realize that God defines who you are, then please don't don't partake. There's nothing magical going on here. Taking the bread and the cup, it does not get you to heaven. These are symbols and representations of of Christ and communing with him. So if you don't have him yet as your Lord and Savior, just wait. But as you wait, think about who Christ is and what he has said and how you fit into that and what your story really is. Because life with Jesus looks an awful lot like sitting under the apostles' doctrine. It looks an awful lot like fellowshipping together having a new family, a new community. Looks an awful lot like praying and praying together. Having the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord looks an awful lot like breaking bread together and enjoying communing with our Savior. I'll ask the elders if they'll come forward and I'll pray. Then we'll distribute the elements. And if you would, please hold and we will make our proclamation that Christ is ours together. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the fact that you are our God. 
We thank you that this table is a pledge of your love to us. It's a reminder from you, Lord Jesus, that you have loved us for thousands of years and that you will love us for thousands more. We thank you that we get to take the bread and put it into our mouths and take it in. We thank you that we get to hold the cup and to drink the cup and to take it in. For God, you are forming us as we do this. You are forming our soul 